Thank you so much, Joe. What a beautiful song this morning. And may our prayer be that all of us, each and every one of us, whatever our situation be here this morning, that we hear from God as he speaks to us by, illuminate, by the illuminating work of his Holy Spirit as he takes his word and applies it to our lives. So if you would, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. In our ongoing study of 2 Peter, we are done with chapter 2 and we are moving into chapter 3. First three verses, this is what Peter says. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Well, our first point this morning is the word of God. In the last chapter of 2 Peter, we return to the sacredness and importance of God's holy word, the Bible. After spending an entire chapter warning us about false teachers, and if you've been with us, I did five different sermons on false teachers, a unique kind of part of Scripture that we looked at in chapter 2. But now Peter returns to the Bible itself. And so if you want an easy way to remember what 2 Peter is about, chapter 1 is about the Bible and the Christian life. Chapter 3 is about the Bible and the Christian life. There are just three chapters. And sandwiched in between is this section on false teachers. The most scathing rebuke of false teachers found in all of Scripture that we just looked at over the last couple of months. But now he returns to the Word of God. Now he returns to the Bible itself. So it's like we're just picking up where we left off in chapter 1. And I want to share something with you this morning that I shared with you a, excuse me, a little over a month ago, and that is this. If we don't believe the Bible, we will believe anything. If we don't believe the Bible, if you don't have the Bible as a source or guide for what is right and what is wrong, then we will literally be open and susceptible to believing anything. We are talking about the truth itself. That's what the Bible is. It is truth itself. And we believe that the Bible is God's self-revelation and only God has the divine right to declare what is true and what is false. That is at the very heart and soul of the Christian faith, that only God has the divine right to declare what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. One of the ultimate questions of life, and there are these certain questions that have puzzled mankind, excuse me, for centuries that people have pondered over and wondered about. One of those questions, those ultimate questions is, how do I know if something is right or wrong? How do I know? How do I know if my behaviors are right or wrong? 
In one culture, it might be right. In another culture, it might be wrong. In one period of history, this may have been wrong. In our period of history, it now, may now be right, at least in people's minds. So how do I know? How do I know what is right and how do I know what is wrong? How do I know what is true and what is false? And we believe, and the Bible teaches, that only God has the divine right to declare what is true and what is false. Well, verse 1 of chapter 3 is the key thought of this last chapter and prepares us for everything else that Peter writes in this chapter. So everything flows from this first verse in which he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. Now there has been some discussion, a little bit of debate throughout the history of the church over what is Peter referring to, what is the first letter that he is referring to. But the consensus today among conservative Bible scholars, and you will find in conservative commentaries, is that he is referring to 1 Peter. He is referring to 1 Peter, the book that we have in our Bible. So he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, my brothers and sisters, my beloved, my, the people of God's family. And so we have two letters from Peter, two letters that are part of the inspired word of God as God used Peter to write them. But it's the second sentence in verse 1 that really prepares us for the rest of the chapter. And he says, in both of them, in both of these letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That phrase, stirring up, is very important. The phrase stirring up means to disturb your complacency and impress upon you the spiritual urgency. This is a good principle. This this little phrase, stirring up, is a good principle for how to read the Bible and how to listen to a sermon. Peter is saying, I'm stirring up your mind. I'm disturbing your complacency. You see, by nature, we tend, even as Christians, to fall into complacency, to fall into indifference, to fall into lethargy in our Christian lives. And maybe even some of you feel that way this morning as we gather together, and he is saying, I want to disturb you. I want to disturb your complacency. You know, you may watch a documentary on TV. And maybe it's a documentary on domestic abuse. Or maybe it's a documentary on child molestation. Or maybe it's a documentary on genocide that has happened in a particular country. And you watch it and you say, oh my, I know that's true. I see that's happening. But it's disturbing. It's really disturbing. That's exactly what Peter is saying. I want to stir up your mind. I want to stir up your mind. I want to disturb your complacency with the holy word of God. And I want to impress upon you how urgent, how urgent these spiritual things are. He said, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. A sincere mind is a mind purified and uncontaminated by seductive influence. In other words, his, he is saying you have pure minds. You haven't 
Thank God you haven't been influenced by the false teachers. Your minds haven't been polluted by error. They haven't been polluted by false teaching. And so he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And here's what I want to remind you of. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. And he gives us two things that we should remember. First, he says, I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. And this means exactly what it says. I want you to remember the prophecies of the Old Testament. The prophets are called holy here to distinguish them from the false teachers. These are not false teachers. These are holy men of God who spoke from God. And he says, I want you to remember what the Old Testament says. And this is a direct reference to the Old Testament. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I want you to remember what Isaiah said. I want you to remember what Jeremiah said. I want you to remember what Ezekiel said. I want you to remember what Micah and Malachi said. I want you to remember what you've read and learned in the Old Testament. And folks, I say to you this morning, if you're not in the habit of reading the Old Testament, we should be. I've shared this with you before, but some Bible scholars are a little uncomfortable with the phrase, and it's, it's become so settled in Christianity, it'll never be changed. But the, the phrase, or the term Old Testament, because sometimes people think it's old and irrelevant. And let me tell you, that testament is not old and irrelevant. It is as relevant today as it's ever been. Some prefer the term the former testament because the New Testament is built upon and flows from the Old Testament. And we need to know and read the Old Testament. We need those great historical accounts found there. We need Psalms. We need Proverbs. We need to read those predictions and those prophecies from the great prophets of the, pa of the faith. And he says, I want you to remember. I'm stirring up your mind so that you will remember the Old Testament. And then he says, I want you to remember, secondly, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is a direct reference to the New Testament, at least as much of the New Testament has, as had been written up to the time that Peter writes this letter. He says, I want you to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Now, most people believe this is a reference, a specific reference to the gospel itself, that this is a, re a reference to the commandment of the Lord and Savior, that the Messiah has come and he has provided for us a totally sufficient and free salvation. And your apostles, notice he calls them your apostles, of which Peter is one of them, have delivered this to you. They have carried on this message. They are in the inspired writers who after the Gospels have taken the commandment, the Gospel, and preached it to us. And this is a reminder to us that the New Testament is as equally inspired as the Old Testament. And we need to give our attention to it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 said, that we are the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So we stand in the long history of those 
who have given our attention and our lives to knowing the Old Testament and the New Testament given to us through the prophets and the apostles. So let me say again, so it is clear in all of our minds, both the Old and New Testaments are equally inspired and every word is completely trustworthy. But he says this to bring us to verse 3. He says, in both these letters, I'm stirring up your sincere mind because I want you to remember. I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I want you to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And here's why. Here's why, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I want you to remember. I want to stir you up. I want to disturb your complacency. I want to appeal to your sincere mind. And I want you to remember what is written in the Old Testament and the New Testament because scoffers are going to come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. He says, knowing this first of all. First of all does not mean first in a series of items. It does not mean first in chronological order. It means, first of all, first in importance. This is of greatest importance. That's what it means. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul talks about the importance of the gospel itself. And he says, For I delivered unto you as of first importance, for I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is of ultimate importance, and that's exactly what Peter is saying here. I want you to know this of great importance. Scoffers are going to come in the last days. Now, as I have shared with you before, we always have to be careful with the term, the last days. We need to know the context in which it is found in a particular book of the Bible and in that section of the Bible. Here, the term last days refers to the entire time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Now, we, as conservative, Bible-believing Christians, sometimes tend to use the term the last days to refer to that time of the rapture of the church, the tribulation, and the visible second coming of Christ. And it can refer to that. But that's not how it's being used here. The last days refers technically to the entire time from the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father to the time when he will visibly return to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. That entire time is known as the last days. In other words, it is the entire period of church history. And Peter is saying, I want you to know that scoffers are going to come throughout church history. And folks, they have, they are, and they will. There have always been scoffers, there are scoffers today, and there always will be scoffers until Jesus returns. The word scoffers here is a very powerful word. It doesn't mean they're joking around about the things of the faith. It doesn't mean that they're just making light of them. It means they're in total rebellion against them. It means that they are denying the very existence of God and deny that the Bible is the word of God. 
They are in rebellion against God and in rebellion against God's word. And they are mocking it. They are belittling it. And that's really going to be the thrust of next Sunday morning's message. They were scoffing at the second coming of Christ. They were rebelling against any teaching about the second coming of Christ. And Peter says to his readers, and he says to every single person here this morning, scoffers are going to come. Let me tell you that scoffers are going to come in the last days. They're going to come throughout church history, and they're going to follow their own sinful desires. They're going to so exalt their minds that they believe they know more than God knows. They are going to exalt themselves sinfully above God himself. They will be filled with pride. They will be filled with arrogance. They will be filled with themselves and they will do it for their own monetary gain and they will do it for their own fame as we learned in chapter 2. So again, he says, I want to stir you up. I want to disturb you out of your complacency. I want you to sense the spiritual urgency here that you need to remember the Old and New Testaments, knowing this, first of all, of great importance, that scoffers will come in the last days. Well, that leads us to our second point this morning. Our second point is glued to the Word of God. That is the title of this message, and that is really how what I want to impress upon all of us. In light of the scoffers who have come, who are here and who will come, in the future, we need to be glued to the Word of God. We need to make it the very essence of who we are as Christians. Peter doesn't simply warn his readers about the false teachers. He challenges them to know the truth of Scripture. It's not enough to warn you about the false teachers that are out there today. We need to know the Bible. We need to know Scripture. We need to know the Old Testament, and we need to know the New Testament. This is exactly how Peter began this letter in chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we have that great passage. Oh my. It's an incredible passage. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Do you realize what this is saying? It is saying that God has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. You have everything you need to live the Christian life through Jesus Christ and through his inspired word, which are called here his very great or his precious and very great promises. If you've ever heard the term, the, precious, the great and precious promises of God, this is where it comes from. It comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to know that. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ and in his word to live the most godly life possible. You don't need some special experience. You don't need some mystical knowledge that hasn't been revealed yet. You need Jesus. You need to know him and to know him and to know him. And you need to give yourself to the sweet and beautiful study of his word. To give yourself to knowing God, to knowing him through his word. 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants you to know they didn't follow myths. They didn't preach man-made traditions. They didn't preach mystical truths. They gave the word of God. And they gave it all in its fullness. And that's what we're here to do as a church. We're to give out the word of God and to give it in all of its fullness. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, one of the great passages in the Bible on the inspiration of Scripture if you were to go to Bible college, if you were to go to seminary, if you were to take a course on the Bible, this would be one of the primary passages that you would learn on the inspiration of the Bible, on the inspiration of Scripture. Peter says in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, knowing this first of all, there's that phrase again, first of all, as of greatest importance, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Folks, don't let anyone ever, ever tell you that the Bible is just a collection of writings by men and nothing more. Because that's a lie. Peter says here, I want you to know this of great importance. No part of Scripture, no truth of Scripture comes from someone's own private mind or interpretation. No truth of Scripture was ever produced by the will of a man. And here's that key section. But men spoke from God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. You don't need any better definition than that. That's what the inspiration of Scripture is. Men of God were so carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were so infused, so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that using their own personalities and using their own writing styles, they wrote exactly what God wanted written so that we can say today when we hold the Bible in our hands, this is the Word of God. This is God continuing to speak to us through his word as he has always spoken to his people. Well, as individual Christians and as a church, we must constantly ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? That ought to be the most important question that we ask ourselves as the people of God in this generation and in this time of history. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about that? There was a pastor who was interviewed on television some time ago. And a reporter asked him, what is your viewpoint? What is your thought on homosexuality and same-sex marriage? Now, when I see pastors on TV ask that question, I get really nervous. Because some of them are really harsh and some of them are really liberal. And they just seem to get these kind of people on there. But this guy gave a really good answer. And this is what he said. He said, you know, my thought on this really doesn't matter. He said, my viewpoint 
my opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what does Scripture say? And the Bible teaches that sexual relations between two people of the same sex is not only wrong, it is sinful. So I don't get to say, this is what he said, I don't get to say what I think. I get to say this is what the Bible says. And you know what? That's, that's the right way to answer that question. Sometimes even we are guilty of saying, you know, well, I think, well, I think this is wrong, or I think this is the way it should be. You know what? Nobody cares what you think. Nobody cares what I think. They really don't. What's important is what does the Bible say? And all these people that stand in opposition to us, their fight is not with us. Their fight is with the Word of God. And we need to let them fight with the Word of God because it stands as the truth and they need to decide how they're going to deal with that. Many years ago, author and pastor Chuck Swindoll said something that I've always remembered. He said, you know, in all my years as a pastor, in all the counseling I've done over all the years, every time someone comes to me, they want to know what does the Bible say. He said, I've never had someone come to me and say, Pastor, my marriage is falling apart. What does Time Magazine say about my marriage? He said, in all my years, I've never had someone come to me and say, you know, I'm struggling with sexual temptation. Does CBS News have anything to say about that? And he said, in all my years, I've never had someone come to me and say, you know what, I'm having conflict with my co-workers at work. What does Chuck Swindoll say? They don't want to know what Chuck Swindoll says. He said, every person that comes to me for counseling says, Pastor, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about what I'm going through? And folks, that's the right question. And the question we should always be asking. And so what I want to do this morning in the time that we have left, I want to share some foundational statements about the Bible that all Christians must have clear and firm in their own minds. These statements are not new with me, so I don't want you to think I'm really original with these statements. I've taken them from books on theology, on statements about the Bible that I've kind of put together. And they're not new, and probably all five of them you've heard before. But what I want you to do this morning as we meet together, I want you to ask yourselves, do I really believe these things? Do I really believe these five statements about the Bible? First, all Scripture, Old and New Testaments, is verbally inspired of God and without error in the original writings and is the supreme and final authority for faith and life. When one of our elders, Ron Kylan, prayed this morning, he prayed that it would be our final authority. Is it for you? Is it the supreme and final authority for your faith and for your life? Can you say without hesitation in your mind and in your heart this morning, I believe that both the Old and New Testaments are inspired of God. They are without error. And they are the supreme and final authority for my faith and for my life. There is a story of a business meeting that was taking place in a church. 
And at the beginning of the business meeting, there was an old man, or excuse me, at the beginning of the business meeting, the pastor read a passage of Scripture. And an old man in that business meeting stood up, raised his hand, and he said, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion to approve the Bible as read. I make a motion to approve the Bible as read. You know, that's a good statement. We approve it just like it's written from the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation. We approve. Not that God needs our approval. It's his word whether we approve it or not. But we affirm that this is the word of God. I make a motion that we approve the word of God as read without correction, without change, without subtraction, without addition. It is the word of God as it is written. Number two, the Bible is God's word, all of it, every word of it, from first to last and everything in between. Do you believe that this morning? If you believe it, it means you don't get to pick and choose what you believe about the Bible. You don't get to say, I believe some parts of it, but not others. You don't get to say, I believe some of the miracles, but not all of the miracles. You don't get to say, I'll obey, I'll obey some of the Bible, but there are parts I just can't obey. It's not an option. You either believe all of it or you don't believe it at all. You either believe all of it or you don't believe it at all. Number three, believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of my life. Believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of my life. See, you don't get to say, I believe the Bible at church, but not in my marriage. You don't get to say, I believe the Bible at home, but not when I'm with my buddies, not when I'm with my friends. You don't get to say, I believe the Bible when I'm with my children, but not when I'm sitting in front of a computer screen. If you really believe the Bible, it means accepting its authority in every area of my life. Number four, believing the Bible means accepting the opposition it brings in my life and in my culture. If you really believe the Bible this morning, there are people who are going to oppose you. There are people who are going to disagree with you. There are people who are going to hate you. There are going to be people who want to silence you. But if you really believe the Bible, you accept, you are more than willing to accept the opposition that it will bring in your life and in your culture. And number five, Believing the Bible means accepting its judgment on society. The Bible says that there are some things that are going on in our world today that are wrong. And we accept the verdict of the Bible. We accept the judgment of the Bible. Only the Bible, only God can say what is right and what is wrong. If you really believe the Bible, you will accept its judgment upon our society. If you believe the Bible, folks, if you believe the Bible this morning, it means you will not be able to bow down to the God of political correctness. 
What we believe is not always politically correct, and that's okay. We believe it anyway. So believing the Bible means accepting its judgment on society. Let me try to bring this all together this morning. There are certain unchangeable facts of Scripture which are true and which must be believed if we are to truly be Christian. God's Word is our absolute. It has always been true, it is true, and it always will be true. And we accept and affirm the unchangeable nature of the Bible, that what was true thousands of years ago is equally as true today, no matter what our culture, no matter what our society may say or do. Let me say this. We, today, as we meet together, we are men and women of author under authority. We are. We, as we meet today, are men and women under authority. We are under the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are under the authority of his holy word. We meet together. We agree to meet together. Because we are men and women always under the authority of another. As many of you know and have seen in the bulletin and will continue to see, at the end of September we are going to have Keith and Kristen Getty with us. They're going to have a concert right here in our church on the last Friday of September. And we sing as a church many of their songs. We sang one earlier in Christ Alone and we're going to close with one this morning. It is the song by faith. And in the chorus of that song, it says this, we will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, on Jesus, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. And if we really mean that, if we truly walk by faith and not by sight, it means that we believe that all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is verbally inspired of God and without error and is the supreme and final authority for all of faith and all of life. Let's pray together. Father, help us. My prayer for myself, my prayer for every person here is let us be glued to the Word of God. Let us immerse ourselves in what God has said is right and what God has said is wrong, what God has said is true and what God has said is false. Help us to live as men and women who are gladly, voluntarily, joyfully under authority, under the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and under the authority of his word. For we pray this in his name. Amen.